This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, good morning, everyone. They've asked if you could move in toward that way a little bit. What's that? Yeah, that's, I mean, as much as possible toward the, the edges, if possible, to make room for people that are still coming in to make it, make it easier. Thank you so much. And then we'll have a word of prayer and get started here in a little bit. See here, one of my. Oh, here we go. Does anyone have the time on you? Oh, nine fifteen. Well, we better get started then. Okay. Yeah, it's go time. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Trust you've had a wonderful GYC experience thus far and that you had a good night's rest. Um, my name is David Shin, and I am presenting a seminar entitled Semin- uh, Seminary. No, it's uh, Sanctuary. <laughs> it's been a long night. Sanctuary Under Siege. And we will be covering what I believe is some, uh, are some of the most pivotal issues in Adventism. And as we go on, It may get a little bit controversial for some, but that's okay, as long as we're biblical. And I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to study the word of God in freedom. We praise you for this opportunity to study the sanctuary, which makes us distinctively Seventh-day Adventists. We pray that you would bless us as we open your word. May the spirit that inspires also be the spirit that instructs. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by doing a brief overview of the seminars that we're going to be doing uh, during GYC. And if you open your seminar booklet to page 15, you will see uh, Sanctuary Under Siege. And today we're talking about the shaking We'll be doing a brief historical reflection in terms of the sanctuary in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, specifically the sanctuary being questioned. Uh, The second seminar is the hijacking, and I believe this is one of the pivotal notions that has helped me to understand Protestantism as well as Catholicism. Ooh, got some feedback there. Number three, we're doing the central pillar, and it is a fundamental teaching that if you miss, uh, we really don't have an understanding of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. The next seminar is entitled Gospel Wars, and what I describe as the holy grail of living a balanced theology. We have this pendulum that swings back and forth. On Friday, we have a topic Uh, entitled Last Generation Theology. Wow, okay. And it it seems to be a term that is uh, many are allergic to in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm going to be doing a brief history of M. L. Andreessen's theology, questions on doctrine, and then 
Eppenstahl's theology, who is arguably the most influential theologian of our generation. In fact, he's the theologian that no one has heard of, but many people uh, are influenced by his theology. All right, and then I'll do a personal reflection after that. The sixth seminar on Saturday is the Omega Apostasy. Ellen White described the Alpha of Apostasy in 1902-1903 with Kellogg and what took place in Battle Creek. She said that she looked forward to the future and saw the Omega Apostasy. And she saw that and she trembled for her people. So we're going to be doing an analysis of what happened back during the time of Kellogg and then look at the Omega Apostasy and look at how the Protestant movement and the Catholic movement and the Muslim movement are all coming together on this platform built on mysticism and even how that is making inroads into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I wish I had more time for that topic, but I wanted to make sure to at least give a, a, a brief synopsis in the hour that we have. All right, so that gives you a, a picture of what we're going to be doing uh, through this. Uh, believe it or not, the sanctuary is something that uh, many Seventh-day Adventists do not incorporate into their theological structure. And I believe that this is a, a pivotal thing that we need to uh, study in this seminar. All right, they are still coming in. And if you have room next to you, scoot in toward the edges. All right, there we go. I didn't have a lot of faith. I thought this would be empty, but uh, thank you for coming. Well, praise the Lord. All right, so let's, let's start right off here in the beginning. The sanctuary, Great Controversy, page 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Notice that Ellen White uses a, a term here. She says that the sanctuary opened to view a complete system of truth. Now, this is code indicating that the sanctuary is more than a doctrine. The sanctuary is a framework for doing theology. Now, there is a fundamental difference between a doctrine and a framework. Now, the sanctuary is a doctrine. Please don't misunderstand me. But this indicates that the sanctuary is more than a doctrine. It is like a roadmap that gives us a theological understanding. Now, here is a blueprint of the Mosaic Sanctuary. It's a bird's eye view of the sanctuary. And you can see that it's divided into three main compartments, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place. The holy place, the most holy place has the ark with the mercy seat. The holy place has three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the lampstand. And the courtyard has the laver and the altar of burnt offering. This is a roadmap for understanding the work of Christ. Adam and Eve in Edenic perfection, let me see if I can get this thing going here. Oh, here we go. All right. We're in the presence of God in the most holy place. 
they had open face-to-face communion with God. Because of sin, we are outside here. And the sanctuary is like a kindergarten illustration that shows us how God will bring us back to here. You know, just a very simple kindergarten model. Adam and Eve were here, all right? Eden lost, Eden restored, all right? This is just a very kindergarten framework. So God is attempting, or I should not say attempting, but bringing this heavenly theme down to a human level of understanding. Here Adam and Eve were, here we are, and we are going to come back. Now notice that you do this in three distinct stages. You come into the courtyard, justification. God delivers us from the penalty of sin. You come into the holy place, sanctification. God delivers us from the power of sin. And then here, you have final glorification. And remember in Revelation chapter 22, the Bible says, and they shall see his what? They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their what? Foreheads. It indicates that when Eden is restored, we will have the character of God reproduced in us. All right? That's that's the reason we can have this face-to-face communion with God. Now, when we talk about gospel wars, we will be addressing this whole notion that the whole of Christian theology, when it comes to our understanding of salvation, is really divided when it comes to the courtyard and the holy place experience. Evangelicals pretty much camp out here in the courtyard. All right? Catholics are more in the sanctification paradigm but it is meritorious sanctification through the seven sacraments. All right? John Wesley came along and said we need to have both justification and sanctification, and the unique contribution of Seventh-day Adventists is we need the whole thing. We need the courtyard, we need the holy place, and the most holy place. Now, Ellen White says in the book Education, I apologize, the reference is off the screen here, it's at the bottom. The central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters, is the redemption plan. The restoration in the human soul of the image of God. From the first intimation of hope in the sentence pronounced in Eden, to that last glorious promise of revelation, they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, the burden of every book and every passage of the Bible is the unfolding of this wondrous theme, man's uplifting, the power of God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that this concept is of restoration. It is to bring us back. And Ellen White says that this is the framework around which the whole book of the Bible clusters. So if you want to have a framework for understanding the Bible, it is about restoration. It is to bring us all the way back. All right? And God does this by taking care of the penalty of sin, by character transformation, and then finally glorification in which our physical bodies and our mental faculties are brought all the way back, and that is in glorification. You know, I always 
joke and say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll be tall. You know, so we're going to get an upgrade. We're going to be brought back to the original of Adam and Eve before the fall. Now, that is just a brief introduction. We want to talk about this notion of the, of the shaking. And Ellen White in Six Testimonies 332 says, We are in the shaking time, the time when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And notice she said this back in 1900. That she was, she, she said this is the shaking time that they are going through. This is a, talking about a doctrinal shaking, and this is what took place at the turn of the century, 1902-1903. You had three individuals, Dudley Canwright, a profound preacher that commented to his friend and said, you know, if we weren't preaching the Adventist message, I would be a very popular preacher. And he defected from the Seventh-day Adventist church. His book is still used today. All right. Then you have J.H. Kellogg, and we'll be talking more about him when we talk about the Omega Apostasy, the head of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, brilliant man, world-renowned. J.H. Kellogg wrote the book, um, The Living Temple, and then you have A.F. Ballinger, who was an evangelist over in Europe, that stated that he believed that Jesus went directly into the most holy place upon his ascension in A.D. 31. All right, so this was a real uh, defection uh, around this time as well. A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner also defected from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So you're talking about like whole institutions, all right, just defecting from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and this is called the Alpha of Apostasies. The defenders were S. N. Haskell, F.C. Gilbert, and E.E. Andros. Now, I'm not going to go through the other two, but this was a, a pivotal moment. And then in the 1930s, you have L.R. Conradi, W.W. Fletcher. The defender was Andreasen. In the 1980s, you had this topic come up again. You had Robert Brimsmead, Desmond Ford, Dale Ratzlab, and Raymond Cottrell. The defenders were DARCOM, or the Daniel Revelation Study Committee. I want to talk a little bit about Desmond Ford. One of my professors was actually a colleague of Desmond Ford, and he commented how Desmond Ford had the closest thing that he knew to photographic memory. It's brilliant. They didn't have CD-ROM back then, and they said it was actually quicker to go to Desmond Ford for an Ellen White quote rather than going to the Ellen White index. This man was a genius. Right, he started off in Australia, was teaching some interesting things, he had been trained by an evangelical theologian, and we need to remember that evangelicals are courtyard-centered, all right? So he was trained by an evangelical, and he started teaching at Avondale, and uh, the brethren got together and said, you know, Desmond Ford, he has a lot of promise, but he's got some interesting ideas. Why don't we bring him to the United States where he can be a little fish in a big pond? Little did they know that he would be a big fish in a big pond started teaching at Pacific Union College, and then the teachings came to view even more, and then in 1989, no, I think it was 1989, no, 1979, they had this big meeting at Glacier View, 1979-1980, and the fallout of Desmond Ford was so huge that a third of the Seventh-day Adventist pastors in Australia left the church. I had one of my professors that told me that during this time, he almost left the church. 
He wrote a 900-page document against the notion that Christ went into the most holy place in 1844, attacking Ellen White. And this was the first time that someone had brought many of the arguments that we had never thought of before. And the Daniel Revelation Study Committee, over the course of a decade, essentially responded to these arguments. Now, I want to look at the arguments that Ford and Ballinger brought forth. And Ford and Ballinger argued that Jesus went directly into the Most Holy Place ministry in A.D. 31. That was their thesis. They said this notion that Jesus went from the Holy Place to the Most Holy Place in 1844, it's biblically unfounded. All right? Now, what does this do to Adventism? I, I, I want you to think about this. All right? What does this do to Seventh-day Adventism if we do not believe that Jesus went from the Holy Place ministry to the Most Holy Place ministry in 1844, do you know what it does to Seventh-day Adventism? We have no reason to exist. All right? This is not just a peripheral concept in Seventh-day Adventism. This is core. This is central. All right? I want to read this quote from Ellen White. All right? In Great Controversy, page 409, the scripture which above all others had been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Notice the language that Ellen White uses. She says the scripture which above all others had been both the foundation and the central pillar. Now, we have several pillars in Adventism. What are the pillars? All right, well, I'm going to write it here on the board. They all start with S, all right? You have what? The second coming. All right, Sabbath. State of the dead. Sanctuary. All right. And the spirit of prophecy, all right? Now, depending on which framework you use, but these, these are essentially the core, all right? Ellen White singles out this one as being the central pillar of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it's not by accident that every 20 to 40 years, it is this doctrine that is attacked, all right? It is this doctrine that is attacked. Every generation, it seems. The sanctuary is the one that is attacked over and over and over again because if you remove the sanctuary framework, we are no longer Seventh-day Adventists. It totally, fundamentally changes who we are. All right? This notion that Jesus transitioned all right, in 1844 from a holy place ministry to a most holy place ministry. All right? That is fundamental. The first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, is a judgment hour context in Revelation chapter 14, the first, second, and third angel's message. I mean, it changes our identity, it changes our mission, it changes who we are. All right, so this is so pivotal, and Ford and Ballinger brought forth arguments that stated that Jesus, upon his ascension, went directly 
into the most holy place ministry, which makes 1844 ludicrous and irrelevant. Everyone following me here? All right, so, so this is the argument that is used. Now, I want to, this morning, look at these three problem text, texts that are used by Ford and Ballinger. They're found in the book of Hebrews, and hopefully I can get through this in quick enough time so that we can deal with these problem texts, and it has to do with this notion of within the veil. How many of you read those texts before, all right, that Jesus went within the veil upon his ascension. So I want you to look in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, and look at these three problem texts that Ford and Ballinger used to state that Jesus went directly into the most holy place ministry upon his ascension in A.D. 31. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. All right, here we are. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters, what does it say? All right, within the veil. Does everyone see that? One that enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, so there's the first one. I'm just going to read through these three very quickly and then make some commentary afterwards. Now, Ford and Ballinger say that this within the veil indicates that he went, went within the second veil. Now, there's two veils in the sanctuary, but they argue that he went within the second veil. All right, so let's go to the second text here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated or consecrated or dedicated for us through the veil that is his flesh. All right, so there we have the notion of Jesus going within the veil again. All right, now let's go to the last text that is used. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter back, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Let's actually read verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place, or if you have a New King James Version or another version, it actually says the most holy place, which is really problematic, isn't it? All right, the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. All right, so there we have it. We have three texts that are used by Ballinger and Ford, they say, proving that Jesus went directly within the veil and started his high priestly ministry. Now, if you believe that, it really 
begs to question why we are here at a Seventh-day Adventist conference, isn't it? All right, this really changes our identity. All right, so let's examine each one of these. Now, just as a brief side note before we begin, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians that were Greek-speaking, all right? They had something called the Septuagint. Now, before Jesus came to this earth, about 100 years before, there was a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, all right? It was done by the rabbis. It's known as the Septuagint or the LXX, all right? Now, Paul actually uses the Septuagint in many of his writings. It is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, this is a very valuable resource because when we read the New Testament and a certain Greek word is used, we can actually go to the Septuagint and find its Greek equivalent. All right, so everyone following me along these lines? All right, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew or Aramaic in the book of Daniel. All right, now this is important for us to recognize as well before we go into our study. Bill Shea, or William Shea, who was part of the Biblical Research Institute, made the observation that the book of Hebrews is actually in a chiastic structure, all right? A chiasm is a form of Hebrew poetry, and it essentially uh, does this parallelism and builds at an apex there at the top. Now, the interesting part of this chiasm is that Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, which we read, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, according to scholars, are parallel verses. All right? They are talking about the same thing in the chiastic structure. And Richard Davison makes the observation that in order for us to understand what is taking place here, we need to go to here because this actually gives us the Old Testament framework. So these two are actually parallel, and what one is talking about, the other is talking about as well. So here's the conclusion from the chiastic structure, and this is fundamentally agreed upon by New Testament scholars. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 equals or is parallel to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, and these are talking about this notion of Christ going within the veil. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 gives us the Old Testament background. All right, now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, and look at exactly what Paul is talking about here. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he... Now, what does your translation say? Which you what? Consecrated? Or consecrated, right? All right. I have the NASB, and it actually says inaugurated. All right. Now, remember that word consecrated for us through the veil. That word consecrated, my translation actually says inaugurated. All right. Now, I want to look at this word consecrated because this gives us the Old Testament context that is being addressed in this verse and also in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. All right, everyone follow me. All right, therefore, brethren, 
having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That word consecrated is the Greek word transliterated inkinizo. All right? It's the Greek word inkinizo. When you do a cross-reference with the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, there is only one book and one chapter in which this term, inkinizo, is used. And it's in Numbers chapter 7. So open your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7. I want you to read this in your own Bible. There is only one chapter in the Pentateuch that this term inkinizo is used in the Septuagint. Numbers chapter 7. And let's actually begin by reading verse 1. Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. All right? Now, on the day that Moses had, what does it say? Had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and its utensils, and he anointed them and consecrated them also. Now, we, we want to understand what is taking place here. The tabernacle was what? Finished. All right? So before the tabernacle was to be put into into use, they had to do a ceremony of consecrating the building. Much like when you have an opening of a church, you have a consecration or a dedication of the building. That's what took place in Numbers chapter 7. The tabernacle was finished, and before the tabernacle could be put into use, There was a ceremony, an inauguration, a dedication of the tabernacle. And Moses did the consecration. Now, there's something very interesting that took place in this consecration. It was the only other time in the sanctuary service that every compartment of the sanctuary was entered. The courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place was entered during the inauguration. The other time, of course, is in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. All right? So this is the inauguration that is taking place. Now, there are several different verses that indicate this notion of inauguration. Now, remember the word inkinizo in the Greek. So Numbers chapter 7, verse 10, now the leaders offered the dedication inkinizo, and I looked this up in the Septuagint last night just to make sure I looked it up before, but here it is, all right? Inkinizo. Now, the leaders offered the dedication inkinizo, offering for the altar when it was anointed, so that the leaders offered the offering before the altar. Here it is again. Ever so quickly. All right. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication inkinizo, of the altar. All right? Here we have it again. Numbers chapter 7, verse 84. This was the dedication in Kainizo, offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver platters were twelve silver bowls and twelve gold pans. All right, here we go again. 
our last one. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls, the rams 60, the male goats 60, and the lambs in their first 60. This was the dedication, incaniso, offerings for the altar after it was anointed. Now, Paul was a rabbi. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He knew the Septuagint. All right? He was writing to the Hebrews who were using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, when he talks about Jesus going within the veil, he sets up the Old Testament context and lifts this term from the Septuagint that is only found in one chapter, Numbers chapter 7. All right, this is huge because what it is indicating is that when Jesus went to heaven, he was anointed as high priest, beginning a new role. He transitioned from the lamb to the high priest, but not only was he anointed and dedicated for that role, the heavenly sanctuary was dedicated for that role. Amen? Amen. All right, so what Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, the term inkinezo is referring to not the antitypical Day of Atonement, but the inauguration of the heavenly sanctuary. The anointing of Jesus as high priest. All right? This really, when, 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 I was, when I first learned this, I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. I mean, this is, this is amazing. When, when you look at what Paul was doing in the book of Hebrews, establishing this notion of the inauguration. Throughout the Pentateuchal references to sacrifices in the LXX or the Septuagint, the word group inkinezo is found in only one chapter. Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7, verse 10, 11, 84, and 88, which we read, which describes the inauguration of the sanctuary as its services started up. The word inkinezo never refers to the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Friends, this is significant, all right? I believe that this might have kept many Seventh-day Adventists from doing away with the sanctuary notion that Jesus transitioned in 1844 from a holy place ministry to a most holy place ministry, all right? The inauguration of the sanctuary. Now, the most holy place was entered on the inauguration the inauguration of the sanctuary, Moses acting in his priestly function before the ordaining of Aaron, went in both the holy place and the most holy place, as found in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9 through 10, and Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. There were two times that the most holy place were en was entered, once in the inauguration and then every year in the yearly annual cycle on the Day of Atonement. So we can see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, he's not talking about the antitypical day of atonement. He's actually talking about the inauguration, which makes sense. When Jesus went to heaven, the sanctuary was inaugurated for use. Jesus was anointed. All right, there's references to the anointing of, of Jesus as well. All right, so as we've seen, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 is parallel to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 and both refer to the inauguration of Christ upon his ascension. Now, moving very quickly here, I want to go to our next and final text, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. 
Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, as we look at this text that was used by Ford and Ballinger. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. Let's pick up in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, we'll deal with this whole notion of the most holy place that is used in some translations, but Richard Davison makes this interesting observation. The word goat there that is translated goat in the Greek is translated, literated, I hope I'm doing this right, tragos, all right? Um, this is a particular term that is used for, for goat, and he cross-referenced it with the Septuagint, and there is only one place that this Greek word for goat is used again. Anyone want to guess where it's used? All right. Um, now, if this is used in the Day of Atonement, friends, we're in trouble, okay? All right. There's actually two terms for goat that are used uh, in the Septuagint. Um, this is one term, and the other one, I hope I'm not s- slaughtering the Greek here. Okay, chimaros is the other one. All right, there's two terms for goat in the Septuagint, all right? Now, the one that is used here in Hebrews, all right, chapter 9, verse 12, is the word tragos, all right? And the only place that the term tragos is used for goat is in Numbers chapter 7. Isn't that interesting? Now, now, this was intentional. Paul could have used this one, but he uses this one. This is the one that is used in Numbers chapter 7, and what does Numbers chapter 7 describe? The inauguration, the dedication. So, So Paul lifts and uses this Greek term that is used in the LXX or the Septuagint in Numbers chapter 7. All right? And I think I have some of these references here on the screen. All right, there it is. All right, no, that's not it. But neither by the blood of goats, tragos, and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once and for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All right? In the LXX, the word tragos for goat only appears in one chapter of the Pentateuch describing the sanctuary rituals. Numbers chapter 7, it appears 13 times. All right? The setting of numbers is the inauguration of the sanctuary. All right? So, very clearly, by the linguistic tags here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 12, Paul is using a very specific term for goat. Now, this term for goat is found in a different part of the Pentateuch, and it is found, anyone want to guess? Leviticus chapter 16. The Day of Atonement. All right? This is the term that is used 
in Leviticus chapter 16. Paul does not use this word. He uses this one. All right? And this one only is found in the Pentateuchal writings in Numbers chapter 7, referring to the inauguration of Jesus and the sanctuary upon his ascension. Leviticus chapter 16 uses a different word for goat, chimaros, and it is referring to the day of atonement. Friends, this is very clear from a linguistic angle. All right? This is clearly not talking about the day of atonement. If it was, Paul, who was very literate in the Septuagint because he used it in his own writings in the Bible, in the New Testament, he would have used this term, which is very clearly in terms of the antitypical day of atonement. But he uses this one, and it's only found in terms of the inauguration of the sanctuary. All right? Everyone clear on that before we move on? All right? This is very clear that Paul is not talking about that. All right, now let's talk about this term, tahagiah. All right? Because if you look in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says that he entered once and for all, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. All right? Now, this term, tahagiah, all right, does not refer to the most holy place by itself when you look at the Septuagint. All right? Matter of fact, it comes up 109 times in the Old Testament. And not once does it refer to the most holy place. Out of those 109 times, 106 of the times, it refers to the entire sanctuary. All right? It refers to the whole thing, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. Three of those 109 times, it refers to the holy place. Now, this is significant. Not once does it refer to the most holy place alone. It refers to the whole structure, the whole thing. And three times, it refers to the holy place. So the translation here is talking about not the most holy place. All right? It is talking about either the whole sanctuary or the holy place alone. This is very, very conclusive. All right? So just in summary, before we move on, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, are parallel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, is referring to the inauguration. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, because of the term that is used here, tragos, is referring to the tragos used in Numbers chapter 7, referring to the inauguration of the heavenly sanctuary, not the antitypical Day of Atonement. All right. In summary, when Christ entered the heavenly sanctuary, he entered to inaugurate it, to officially start up the services as priest and king. He went into the entire sanctuary as in the type found in Numbers chapter 7, verse 1, and Exodus chapter 40. All right. Do we have any questions before we move on. I think I ended a little bit earlier. Yes? Um, real quick, what yeah. was the role of the heavenly sanctuary before a very old Testament? Because it's been described by God being in the sanctuary over and over again. Yes, yes. 
Um, Dr. Dr. Muscala, who is the dean of the seminary, he's an Old Testament scholar, he believes that the heavenly sanctuary was there prior to the, even the, um, the inception of sin, except it was for the purpose of worship. And then it was structured for, for the plan of salvation in that, in that framework. So that, that is his take on it, and I think that's the best explanation that I found in terms of the use and the function of the temple in, in the heavenly sanctuary prior to its inauguration and use during that time. Yes? Yeah. Yes. 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 Right. 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 Well, well, Jesus entered with his own blood, according to the book of Hebrews. All right. So it was on that basis that I believe that the sanctuary was to be facilitated and used and dedicated. Yeah. Yes. Yes. How do we reconcile that with 1844? Yes. Uh, repeat that question again. So, so what I'm trying to say is like, I'm trying to really paint a timeline. Right. So like, I think I'm understanding your statement. Just to summarize, Jesus' death on the cross, AD 31. Upon his ascension, he transitioned into the high priestly role. All right? That's when the sanctuary was inaugurated. But his function after AD 31 was in a holy place function, in the holy place. All right? In 1844, he transitioned from the holy place function to the most holy place function. Now, this is a, an interesting concept because, um, how do I say this without getting into trouble? Uh, Jesus, the heavenly sanctuary is a model that illustrates to us a heavenly concept down to an earthly level, all right? And, and not only for us, but for the universe. Um, but there is such a quantum leap between God and humanity. I mean, it's farther than us to uh, amoeba. You, you know what I'm saying? This is just a quantum. It's like us trying to explain to an ant the internet. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, so, so what do you do? You, you use analogy, all right? You use analogy. So, so we need to understand when we're talking about Christ in the holy place, I, I, I want to be very careful. I don't believe that Jesus is bound in a physical space since 1844. I, mean, I need to be very careful. It's describing the function of Jesus. All right? Now, I believe that there is a time and space 
model in heaven. Please don't misunderstand me, all right? But, but we need to look at this beyond the space, but in the function of what Jesus is doing during that time. Now, we'll unpack this some more, but, but if Jesus has transitioned from a holy place function to a most holy place function, all right, that has huge implications, all right? Very, uh, I mean, just huge implications about how we live here and now. Now, I don't have time to go into all the implications of that, all right, but that has just a lot of implications. Also, there are implications that when that stops, all right, now we'll unpack this when we address last generation theology, all right, and, and some of the nuances of that. When that stops, there is a time period in which between that and the second coming, there is no mediation, all right? There is no mediation. Now, I, I have been uh, in seminars or been taught by professors that you know, I looked up to very highly, but they really grappled with this notion of the ending of mediation, of this notion of living without a mediator, all right? I, what does that mean? I, what does that mean? All right, there's all kinds of... And he said, I won't tell you his name, but he said, you know what, Ellen White's concept of living without a mediator, he said, is borderline blasphemous. I about fell out of my chair. But, but I understood where he was coming from because he was coming from an evangelical perspective. It just didn't make any sense. Now, there is a pitfall that you can fall into in this notion of living without a mediator, and I'll unpack that a little bit more when we address last generation theology, but the real issue here is it comes down to a people that are totally dependent upon the merits of Jesus, all right? Living without a mediator does not indicate that we no longer need Jesus. That's not what it's saying. We are still dependent, all right? We are, we're going to be dependent through that period, all right? But there's implications about what that means in terms of Christian growth, all right? There's, there's a lot to unpack in that. And then when it comes to questions on doctrine, all right, the pivotal issue they had was this whole notion of the sanctuary and the cleansing of the sanctuary because they believed that everything finished at the cross. That was done, all right? Now, the thing is, if you take that framework that everything was finished at the cross, it ended in the courtyard, then what are we doing here for 2,000 years? I have not heard a good explanation from my evangelical brothers as to why we are here 2,000 years after the cross, and the answer is really in the sanctuary, all right? It doesn't make sense if you just look at the courtyard, all right? What has Jesus been doing this whole time? The only frame of reference we can have is the sanctuary. And the, the implications of Jesus moving from a holy place to a most holy place has huge ramifications for our, our living here and now. All right? it, has, it has all types of ramifications and implications and nuances that I do not have all the time to go into. Yes, question. Yeah. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, what, what we have just gone through today is, is um, I mean, it, it just turns the arguments of Desmond Ford and Ballinger in particular into just, it, it, 
it makes it invalid. No, no. Um, and you know, this is not. I mean, I did not come up with this. I mean, there's there, this. This is really. Uh, Richard Davidson has done phenomenal work in this realm, and I'll give you some articles that you can look up that have shown in greater detail. I, I mean, I've just tried to take it and, and make it uh, intelligible so that I can understand. <laughs> but but uh, so, so this, is, this, is the, this is the framework. But th- friends, before we close, I, I want to point out that heresy is not, uh, it does have its benefits, all right? Uh, Ellen White actually says that, that sometimes God allows heresies into the church so that we can come to a deeper and fuller knowledge of the truth. And this is what's happening now. You know, the, the fallout of Desmond Ford was that many people left the church, but uh, the positive side of what took place is that we have now a more fuller and grounded understanding of these texts and the whole notion of the heavenly sanctuary than ever before. I mean, this actually builds my faith, all right? It shows us that, look, we're not, we're, we're not a bunch of crazy people, all right, that, that is uh, turning off our brains and just believing something, all right? This is rock solid, all right? This is rock solid, and when we come to our third seminar, I'm going to be going through and building on how rock solid our understanding of, of this whole notion of the cleansing of the sanctuary really is, all right? It's so rock solid that if you believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I mean, that, that's the logical conclusion that you have to come to in terms of the connection between the 70-week prophecy and the 2,300 days. If you believe in Jesus, you have to be an Adventist, all right, from, from that framework, yes. Yes, yes, I believe that there is a, I mean, we're going through the shaking, friends, I believe, to a certain degree, where, where many teachings and doctrines are coming through the church. And I'll address some of those teachings when we come to the Omega, all right, and, and talk about some of the, the things that are happening in, in, the, in the movements uh, between evangelicals, Catholics, and, uh, and even Islam. All right. Any other questions before we... Yes. 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 Right. Right. Yes. 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 That's a good question. Ah, that's a good question. Um, wow, that's a whole other. I mean, because well, Ellen White says around 1900, Jesus could have come. All right? So, and then when you look in Revelation chapter 7, the beginning part of it, it says that four angels are holding the four winds, all right? Now, when you look at the context of Revelation, you see that once those four winds are let loose, it implies that it begins certain events, that domino effect culminating with the second coming. So, so the angels are holding the four winds, and then a fifth angel, another angel comes, and 
speaks to the four angels, and notice what he says. He says, hold them until what? Until the servants of God are what? Sealed on their foreheads. Now, this has implications. God is not waiting for the Pope. All right? He's not waiting for the separation between church and state to fall. I mean, all those pieces are there, and they could just happen just like that. But notice that there is something that God is looking at. He's looking at His church. All right? And there's a lot that we can unpack in terms of this. You know, the seal was, in, in the first century, it was something that was put into a document, all right? A document that was signed and finished, okay? You put, it's like a signature. You put your signature on something that is finished when it's completed, all right? Um, there's signatures in Genesis. God creates the earth in six days. He signs it with the Sabbath, right? Ezekiel chapter 20 says that, the Sabbath is a signature, a sign, not only of creation, but redemption. So God took the earth, empty, void, forms and fills it. At the end, he signs it with the Sabbath. All right? God takes us, recreates in this the image of God, signs it. All right? The signature is the Sabbath. All right? Now, the, the, the seal is placed on the forehead. In Revelation, it also says that the Father's name is on the forehead. All right? So, so what I believe is that before Jesus comes, in Revelation chapter 18, it tells us that the whole earth is lit with the glory of God. I believe that the earth is going to be able to see a picture of the character of Jesus reflected in us, all right, as a witness. All right, now I want to be very clear. It's His work not ours. Right, the Sabbath is a sign that we rest in God's work, that we can't work our way to heaven. All right? So we, we need to be very careful when we frame this, but, but that, that is indicative of what we are talking about when we, when we look at this trajectory. You know, why has it been so long? So that, that hopefully answers some of those questions in terms of maybe not. But anyway, so hopefully, yes. We had another question here. Her question was, what do the evangelicals respond with as to why we're still here 2,000 years after the cross? I honestly have not heard a cogent answer to that question. You know, I have not heard a cogent answer to that question. Um, I want to be very clear that when it comes to this notion of last generation theology, um, there have been some that have... Uh, experienced legalism in that framework. Um, and I'll unpack some of that on, on day number five. But I want to be very clear that when we do our theology, we need to never judge something by its abuse. Okay? Never judge something by its abuse. It is very, very clear in the book of Revelation and in the writings of Ellen White that there is going to be a people, all right, however you frame it, however you nuance it, that are going to be translated without seeing death, all right? 
And there are going to be a people, according to the book of Revelation and the Great Controversy and other Ellen White's writings, that are going to be living during a time when mediation in heaven has ceased. Now unpack that how you will, all right? But I believe that the devil wants to ensure that that never takes place, okay? So we're going to have a discussion on that, and I'm kind of going off into waters that I want to cover a little bit later. But uh, let's take a, oh, let's, have, let's close with a word of prayer and then take a 15-minute break and we'll come back. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truth as found in your word. We thank you that um, there is a sure word of prophecy, and we thank you that we have a truth that is not founded upon cunningly devised fables, but it is a truth that is rock solid that we can build our faith upon. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, here's a few other references that you can look at. Now, you can get these uh, slides um, from this. Uh, I apologize for the complexity. This is a shortened link. If you go here, you can get all of the notes from today's presentation. All right, you can go there and download it. Go to that link, and there's a download button. You can download all of these notes and use them for your reference. And I double-checked this a few times, so I know that it works. Make sure that the, the casing is right, because that will make a difference. These need to be uppercase and lowercase, but that, that is the notes for today's presentation that you, can, that you can use there. We will meet back here in 15 minutes at 10.30 and continue our presentation. And it is the hijacking and examination of the greatest coup in the history of Christian theology. All right, yes, go back, yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I will repeat it. Yeah, thank you. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, Visit us online at www.gycweb.org.